welcome everyone. Today is November 6, 2009. This is Christy Balsells, Executive Director of Mito Action, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Irina Anselm from Children's Hospital Boston, who's joining us today. A new article was just published this month that is an update on mitochondrial disease treatment approaches, and that is primarily what our focus will be today. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Ann Summers. I know she's been working on this for the last year with several other people who are experts in the field of mitochondrial medicine. We're lucky because Dr. Anselm is a board member of Mitochondrial MitoAction's Mito Medical Advisory Committee, and uh, she practices in child neurology at Children's Hospital Boston, sees many mitochondrial disease patients. So, Dr. Anselm, really glad to have your experience today, and thank you so much for the time you're taking to um, share this update with all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and thank you for inviting me to speak to you today. And uh, of course, I want to thank Christy for asking me to give this talk. I think that these uh, interactive sessions are important for the patients and their families, but they're also very important for us physicians who care for these uh, patients. Uh, because when we prepare such talks, uh, we have to stop for a moment and uh, really ask ourselves, what are we doing? Why are we using this or that approach? And why are we using this or that supplement or medication. And uh, I've been caring for patients with mitochondrial disorders for about 10 years. My views and approaches had evolved and changed over time. More data had, became, uh, had become available in past 10 years. I have also accumulated some experience. And what I'm going to talk to you today is the current approach that I use and other physicians who work in this area use as well. And I'll be talking about current approach, but of course this approach will most likely be different in the future. So last year, the members of Mitochondrial Medicine Society, including myself, decided to come up with society opinion statement on the modern approach to the therapy of mitochondrial disorders. This allowed us to communicate and share the ways we treat our patients. And as Christy had mentioned, this paper just came out. It's the journal called Current Treatment Options in Neurology. And this paper summarizes the data on the different supplements that uh, are currently being used for treatment of patients with mitochondrial disorders. It also talks about general approach to this patient. And I must say that among all of us, and there was several physicians from all over the country, including Bruce Cohen from Cleveland Clinic and Richard Haas from San Diego, and there's not much of a difference in the way we treat our patients. We all agree that mitochondrial patients, both adults and kids, should be treated with supplements, and I will talk about that. And But most of us do not use polypharmacy, such as we prefer not to use too many vitamins, and the reason for that is that there's really not much data supporting the use of many of these supplements that, that are currently being used in mitochondrial patients. So I want to spend a few words on the background of treatment for mitochondrial disorders. As you might know, mitochondrial disease therapy is still in its infancy. Mitochondria have only been linked to the human disease since 1960s with much of the knowledge discovered only in the past 20 years. 
And in general, and I'm not talking only about mitochondrial disorders, but in, in medicine in general, in order to see if the certain approach, medicine or supplements works and if the therapy is a right one, one need to do study or a trial, and this is called evidence-based medicine. And unfortunately, there are a lot of problems and obstacles with doing trials in mitochondrial patients. Mitochondrial diseases are classified as rare disorders, although uh, we know that probably they're not as rare as many people think, but funding for research in rare diseases is very limited as compared to more common ones like diabetes and cancers and so on. And the other limiting feature is that, as many of you may know, patients with mitochondrial disorders differ from each other, and it's difficult to compare these patients. And uh, also fluctuations of symptoms in the same patient may affect the results. And uh, um, majority of mitochondrial treatments are categorized as medical foods, and therefore financial incentive for pharmaceutical companies to study and develop uh, those compounds is uh, small. So um, the picture I described is rather grim. Nonetheless, there are many studies which really try to review the efficacy of different vitamins and supplements in mitochondrial patients, and I would like to talk to you about those today. Um, so I will talk to you about the most commonly used supplements and vitamins, and also about how much data is there to support their use. So the one that, you know, probably very familiar with is uh, coenzyme Q10. This is the one most popular, the most popular supplement, and there's more data about CoQ10 uh, than on most of others altogether. And the evidence for its use was extensively reviewed by Richard Haas from San Diego several years ago, and it was published in the journal called Mitochondria. So the agreement among specialists is that CoQ10 should be used in patients with mitochondrial disorders, that every patient with mitochondrial disorders should be tried on coenzyme Q10. So what does it do? Um, coenzyme Q10, it shuttles electrons through the respiratory chain, and in theory it should improve the production of energy in the form of ATP. As you may know, the, uh, the ATP production is impaired in patients with mitochondrial disorders. And the uh, goal of the treatment of mitochondrial disorders is improve this ATP production, and of course the ultimate goal is to improve the disease symptoms or stabilize them at least. So the question is um, the following. If the coenzyme Q10 is given by mouth, is it going to get into the organs that need uh, it? And the answer is yes, and there were experiments that had shown that Indeed, coenzyme Q10 taken by mouth, it gets into organs and systems uh, that need it the most in patients with mitochondrial disorders, skeletal muscles, brain, heart, um, and some others. It is, however, uh, very poorly absorbed in the powder form, and it's far better absorbed when it's mixed with oil. So. Uh, the doses for coenzyme Q10 that we use range from 5 milligrams per kilo to 30 milligrams per kilogram per day, and I'm talking about children. And it can be given once a day because the half-life of it is very long. It's 36 hours. So we usually give it either just one time in the morning or twice a day. 
And recently, the new form of coenzyme Q10 uh, become available, and this form is called ubiquinol. Coenzyme Q10, which is sold in CVS and nutritional stores, is ubiquinol, and this new form is ubiquinol. And this form is five times better absorbed uh, compared with uh, coenzyme Q10, the ubiquinol. And there are numerous reports on benefits of coenzyme Q10, and so um, most of these reports, they do not reach high level of scientific or statistical evidence, but nonetheless, they support the notion that CoQ10 should be tried on every patient with, my, patient with mitochondrial disorder and even with suspected mitochondrial disorder. And that's what I do. I use it in all my mitochondrial patients, sometimes even before uh, they undergo muscle biopsy. And if I plan to send the muscle uh, for CoQ10 analysis, and I do it when uh, I suspect primary CoQ10 deficiency, then I stop it a few weeks prior to the biopsy. And in Massachusetts, many patients, many mitochondrial patients receive insurance coverage thanks to Christie and other MitoAction Committee members' efforts, and it can be compounded into liquid uh, on its own on to, or together with uh, other uh, vitamins. And I started using this new form that I mentioned, the ubiquinol, just recently. It's a liposomal form of coenzyme Q10, and it cannot be compounded, but it's, it comes in a very concentrated form. So even for small children, uh, they do not have to take large volumes, and then we do not need to use such high dose as we use with coenzyme Q10 with ubiquinone. So I use about 5 to 10 milligrams per kilo per day, and I usually uh, recommend the Solus Nutrition Company uh, Tishkan. And, uh, but I recently looked online, and it seems like uh, some other companies have started producing the ubiquinone. And of course, Anecdotes do not prove that the medicine does work indeed, but I want to share one with you. I follow a patient, a teenage girl with mitochondrial disorder who had a heart transplant this year. Her mitochondrial disease had mostly affected her heart. So she underwent the transplant in January this year, and after that she was recovering very nicely from the standpoint of her cardiologist. However, her energy level was very poor, and cardiologists started saying that they cannot explain this based on the status with her heart because it was great. So uh, we switched her from regular CoQ10 to ubiquinol, and her mother emailed me that um, they saw significant improvement in her energy level. And uh, going to see her next week, I, I hope that this still continues to be the case. And there are no real side effects with CoQ10. Um, and by the way, it was used in huge doses in adults with ALS and some other neurodegenerative disorders. Some parents would tell me that their kids are more agitated than before when uh, on CoQ10, and so I try not to use it at night. So um, uh, next supplement that goes uh, after CoQ10 and its significance for patients with or with data supporting its use is not the carnitine, it's creatine. It's the same creatine that is used by bodybuilders for pumping up their muscles. It has been used uh, in the past not for just for bodybuilding, but for example in patients with muscular dystrophies such as Duchenne muscular dystrophies and uh, uh, now uh, there's more and more knowledge being accumulated that this creatine could be helpful for mitochondrial 
patients. So what does creatine do? It, creatine is present in all cells of our body, and it combines the phosphate, the same phosphate that is needed for the production of ATP. And it also shuttles uh, this high-energy phosphate from the site where it's produced to the organs uh, where this ATP is needed, such again as muscle, brain, and heart. Um, the doses that are used are quite high, and, and it makes it hard to use it in young children, in even adults. In adults, for example, uh, 10 grams per day is needed, and in kids it's 0.1 gram per kilo per day. But compounding pharmacies, again, help us with that, and uh, I also refer my patients to Solus. They came up with a liquid form of creatine called cytotine, and so um, it might be very helpful, especially in young children, to use this form. And several trials in mitochondrial patients demonstrated that creatine improved the strength in these patients. And there are ways to measure creatine in the brain and in the muscles, and it's been shown that uh, in patients with mitochondrial disorders, the level of creatine could be uh, low, and the supplementation of creatine could be helpful. And again, in, in spite of high doses used, it does not appear that there are any major side effects. Um, it has to be used with caution in patients with kidney failure, and then uh, crystals may form in urine with high doses. Uh, next, after creatine goes L-carnitine or L-carnitor, and it has been used in mitochondrial patients for many years, many years, and it's actually covered by insurance, I think, in, in all states. However, the data for its use is very sparse, and I'm not talking about primary carnitine disorders, which are different from mitochondrial disorders, but um, there's very sparse data on its use in mitochondrial patients. Carnitine is needed to transfer fatty acids inside the mitochondria, as these fatty acids could be a source of energy besides the glucose. And usually patients with mitochondrial disorders do not have severe carnitine deficiency, but the levels in their blood and plasma could be low. So we do use carnitine. It can be used by mouth or intravenously. The doses are between 20 and 100 milligrams per kilo per day. Again, I'm talking about children. But no studies had shown really benefits of isolated carnitine use in mitochondrial patients. And the, there are side effects from carnitine, for example, the unpleasant smell or odor, and this is due to the bacterial breakdown of carnitine in the gut. But this is dose-related. The dose can be reduced, and then some short courses of antibiotics can be used for that. And also, caution should be used in patients with renal failures, the toxic metabolites may be produced. Uh, the next one is folinic acid, so leucovorin. It's a form of folic acid that's now being used more and more frequently in patients with mitochondrial disorders because they may have deficiency of folate in the brain. And it's not fully understand why, probably because of the gain lack of energy, the folate is not being appropriately transported into the brain. And the fact that uh, the folate is low in the brain has been known for patients with Kern-Sayers syndrome, one of the well-known mitochondrial disorders since 
uh, 1980s. But now there's more data coming up that patients with other mitochondrial disorders may also have brain folate deficiency. So I started using it for uh, many of my patients in the form of leucovorin, and uh, the doses are getting brought from 0.5 milligrams per kilo per day to 2.5 milligrams per kilo per day. Uh, I should probably uh, say a few words about arginine. Uh, this is a relatively new uh, treatment, and it's mostly utilized for patients with MILAS. Um, as you might know, patients with MILAS are one of the also well-described and well-known mitochondrial disorders. They have strokes, and arginine, uh, this is an amino acids, acid. If it's given intravenously during the stroke, it may reduce and improve the symptoms, and if it's given by mouth or by G-tube uh, prophylactically, it may prevent the stroke. So we started using arginine in all our patients with uh, MILAS. Then uh, another treatment that's been used for many years, uh, but not very common or popular because it's more sort of experimental treatment, it's dichloroacetate. It's a medicine which is aimed to reduce uh, plasma and spinal fluid lactate. And it's a very potent drug. It really reduces the lactate. We have a uh, protocol here at Children's, so I've been using that for 10 years. Um, and I must say that most patients do quite well on the DCA, except for patients with MILAS who uniformly develop neuropathy or damage to the nerves. And so the use of this DCA is very, very limited now. And uh, in most centers, it's not used anymore. And then there are some other vitamins and supplements, uh, such as riboflavin or vitamin B2 and uh, uh, thiamine or vitamin B1 and vitamin C and D, and they've been used for years and years for patients with mitochondrial disorders. However, uh, there's really not much data to support the use of these vitamins. So most of us would use some of those vitamins, but again, we try to avoid putting our patients on many vitamins at the same time. Just to summarize, I would say that coenzyme Q10 has to be tried in all patients with mitochondrial disorders, with suspected mitochondrial disorders. I usually use carnitine. I use creatine too, especially in those children who appear to be weak um, and with poor energy. And I decide on the individual basis about the use of other uh, vitamins. So, um, as far as diet is concerned, patients with mitochondrial disorder obviously need healthy nutrition. It is known that mitochondrial dysfunction occurs as a secondary phenomenon in malnourished patients. And therefore, we always try to make sure that our patient receives certain amounts of calories. I often use help from our nutritionist. But mitochondrial patients do not need any specific diets. Many of you have heard probably about the ketogenic diet, the diet high in fat, which used in patients with um, refractory epilepsy. So this diet was evaluated in few patients with mitochondrial disorders. It's not clear whether it really helps or not. I have several patients, mitochondrial patients, who are on this diet because they have a lot of seizures and their mitochondrial, quote-unquote, symptoms did not get better on this diet, but of course this diet needs to be investigated more. 
in mitochondrial patients. It's used in patients with pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, and again, it's, it, it became a standard, but it requires more investigation. So I did not spend much time talking about symptomatic therapy, such as treating seizures, pain, sleep problems, gastrointestinal problems, etc. This is beyond the topic of this talk. I understand that the main question you may have, okay, uh, these supplements have been used for a while, we know about this, but what's new, what's really new? Is gene therapy available for mitochondrial patients? The simple answer, unfortunately, is no. It's not available clinically, but this does not mean that scientists or physicians do not think about it, do not consider it for mitochondrial patients, and do not publish papers on its potential use. There are different types of gene therapy which are being considered, and again, this is beyond uh, uh, this topic. Um, but I can give you an example of a new emerging therapy. For example, there is a disorder called Menji, it's a mitochondrial disorder, mitochondrial uh, neurogastrointestinal encephalomyopathy. Uh, Menji is abbreviation, and this is a disease due to mutation in nuclear not mitochondrial DNA, but it leads to the mitochondrial DNA depletion. And bone marrow transplantation has been tried on two patients with meninges with good results. So just to finish, as you see, um, and you knew, of course, therapy for mitochondrial disorders is aimed to improve symptoms, slow down the disease progression, but it's not really curative one. Unfortunately, um, so far there is no cure for mitochondrial disorders. However, lack of cure does not mean lack of treatment. So we physicians who care for mitochondrial patients, we try to affect the symptoms of the disease and thus try to improve the quality of life uh, for our patients. So let me stop here. I think I went over time already. No, Irina, um, Dr. Anselm, thank you so much for that excellent overview. And uh, just a reminder for anyone who is listening that there is a link to the article that Dr. Anselm mentioned um, right on the MitoAction website. So you can find that um, in the post that has the summary about today's meeting. Um, very exciting, I think, just to have a consensus of opinion that you shared and that is published now um, about some of these approaches. So I'm sure that some folks have some questions. So I'm going to open up the lines and let us take a few questions and discussion. But uh, thank you very much, Dr. Anselm, an excellent overview. So hang tight with us, and we'll open up the lines, and we'll take some questions. Sure. All right, so uh, if you'll just, we'll just take turns, and you can virtually raise your hand, and then <laughs> just give us your uh, name and where you're calling from and your relationship to mitochondrial disease, and then you can share your comment or ask your question. So who would have the first question? Okay, um, I have a question. I'm Neelam. I'm calling from North Carolina, and my son is four years old. Uh, he was diagnosed with probable mitochondrial disorder through a frozen muscle biopsy at the Duke uh, when he turned three. Um, and uh, right now we are giving him coenzyme Q10, creatine, and L-carnitine. We were not able to give him alpha-lipoic acid because the form that was suggested by the doctors were the liquid gel from Tishcon. And uh, I tried breaking the caps and mixing it with all form of imaginable food, and he hated it so much. Mm -hmm. But 
now um, we have been able to find a pharmacist in New York who is uh, who has agreed to compound it for us. Mm -hmm. The only question that I have right now is how important is alpha lipoic acid to be included in this uh, mitococktail? Uh, well, as I said, we um, reviewed the available data, and that included the lipoic acid as well. So um, I don't think that there is really any data which really supports its use. Uh, so I don't think that uh, alpha-lipoic acid is as crucial as other supplements that your son is on. Absolutely, coenzyme Q10, creatine, uh, probably carnitine, but uh, if it's really hard to um, get the child to take this supplement, and uh, I, I've heard that from other patients that it doesn't taste well, and uh, I certainly would not try to push that or compromise the use of uh, of other more important supplements. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thank you. All right, who has another question? Christy, do you want me to say a few words about the vaccination, especially about the swine flu vaccine? Well, that would be great, Dr. Ansom, yeah. and I think that um, I, I have hear some questions frequently also about hyperbaric oxygen. So if you have an opinion about that or any experience and you could talk about that as well, uh, that sure. would be great. Uh, so uh, first about the vaccine, uh, and okay, we all know about the epidemic of H1N1 flu, uh, swine flu, and it seems like it's reaching its peak, and unfortunately uh, there is a shortage of vaccine, and uh, uh, the vaccination is the guidelines. It's recommended for people age of uh, six months to 24 years, and also for the persons who have medical conditions associated with higher risk of complications, and I think we will agree that mitochondrial patients belong to this group. So we uh, recommend vaccination if you could get this vaccine. And I heard many questions from our parents this whether the vaccine can be given on the same day um, the, as the seasonal flu. And the answer is yes. Probably yes, we recommend uh, to separate. Uh, it doesn't have to be separated, the, the swine flu vaccine from seasonal flu, but for patients with mitochondrial disorder, we generally uh, recommend separation of vaccine just to avoid the metabolic stress. Uh, the only uh, one recommendation, um, the limitation from CDC is that, um, and I don't think it relates to mitochondrial patients, it's about the live seasonal vaccine and live H1N uh, vaccine. They cannot be given in one day. Uh, but I don't think that any of our patients will be getting live vaccines, so it's probably not uh, relevant. And uh, in terms of uh, hyperbaric oxygenation, and this is also mentioned in, uh, in uh, the paper, that there is no evidence that hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen therapy is beneficial for patients with uh, mitochondrial uh, disorders. And uh, uh, in theory, there is a concern about the oxygen toxicity for, for this patient. So, you know, the, the Mitochondrial Medicine Society does not support uh, the use of hyperbaric oxygen. Please, may I? Um, Go ahead, Joanne, if you'll just introduce yourself, and you're welcome to share your opinion. 
<clears throat> Please, actually, there is evidence because the PO2 level at the mitochondrial has been tested at, at, at 2, and so it's been tested so many times. Um, Dr. Harch, um, the fellow, the fellows in the hyperbaric program down at LSU, um, they've, they've actually done many studies on it, and um, it, it has been used on many patients with um, mitochondrial issues and dystonia issues, both here and abroad, and um, it has been the only treatment that has worked for me with ameliorating effects, and um, the only treatment um, that I have ever had that um, has had any residual effects. And um, I do realize that you can't do a double-blind study because obviously if you put somebody in a chamber and a vacuum-tight chamber and you can't not put oxygen in it, <laughs> so it's difficult to do a double-blind study that way. But my goodness, please, there there are studies out there, and um, I can provide documentation if you'd allow me to. Please, please don't um, just throw it out with the bathwater because it truly are many, many people like myself that, again, this is the only treatment that has had any effect at all. Uh, well, I just uh, express uh, the opinion of uh, the physicians who work in this area. I, you're absolutely right that, you know, it's hard to do that double-blind and control studies with uh, uh, these cameras. So, um I do not believe that uh, there are uh, uncontrolled studies which really prove that it works, but of course we all will be happy to look more into that, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to hear that it helped you. But generally we do not recommend that. And Joanne, if you, any time that you're interested in sharing um, your thoughts, I think that you can certainly do that. You can post a comment on the page that we have the summary and um, and if you have a link to the articles that you mentioned, it's it, that's um, a great way to let other people learn about both sides of that. Is there any danger to it? Uh, Dr. Well, Nelson, is there danger to hyperbaric oxygen treatment? In theory, there could be some oxygen toxicities. And, of course, uh, these uh, treatments are very extensive and very expensive. And uh, since... Uh, um, we feel that there is really no uh, benefits from these treatments. Uh, we we don't recommend it. And uh, you know the question uh, was uh, raised many times for other conditions, cerebral palsies, and so on. And uh, I don't think that it's ever been shown that these treatments had benefits for uh, for neurological disorders like that, including mitochondrial disease. Again, please forgive me with all due respect. Um, my goodness, yes, there is. And it's been testified in front of Congress on three different times now. And even, again, please, 
please allow me to give you the documentation. Um, even the Army is using it for um, post-traumatic head injuries right now. Um, please allow me to forward you documentation. It, it's just unbelievable, and there are so many clinics even in this area where it's only approximately $200 of treatments. And if you use the neurological protocol at one and a half atmospheres for an hour, um, it, it's so much cheaper. Uh, of course, in hospitals, they, they have to charge much, much more. But um, there's one right in Randolph that um, is so much cheaper. And um, I, I, I promise, I, I'm, if you knew me, I'm the biggest wimp, and I would never speak out <laughs> um, unless I, I just truly saw um, the unbelievable results that children with cerebral palsy and other um, injuries such as that receive with it, and um, honest. What's, uh, what's great is that in an opportunity like this, we can really hear both sides, and I'm sure Dr. Anselm would be the first to agree that sometimes medicine is ahead of the game, and, and sometimes um, evidence-based medicine evolves because of the patient population. Sure, I agree, so, and I think, you know, since so many people are interested in that, it will be great to do a review specifically, you know, uh, of that, either with a talk on that or even just posting information on the Mighty Action site. Absolutely, I think that, that would be important. So thank you for sharing that for and for both of you for talking about it. Uh, I, we have time for a couple more questions, and, uh, and I have a question um, from a member as well, but I'll, I'll hold that for a moment to give someone else a chance. Anyone have a question? Or this comment? is... This is Nicole Friel um, from North Andover. I was actually curious if there were any vitamin supplements other than melatonin that, Dr. Anselm, you could suggest for sleep issues. Uh, no, as far as vitamins or supplements. I use melatonin a lot, uh, and it seems to be working quite well in some of uh our patients, uh, but um, if melatonin does not work, unfortunately, we have to use uh, stronger uh, approaches or medications. Um, we do use some on uh, mitochondrial patients like clonidine, clonopin, trazodone. So uh, melatonin is really the only one <coughs> supplement for sleep. Okay. I have another question. I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to take your opinion about the long-term usage of Miralax. Is it really good for the child to take it on a continuous basis? And also, what are your op opinion on alternatives like probiotics? Um, as far as Miralax, um, I am unaware of any long-term side effects, but... Uh, as I'm a neurologist, I'm probably not the best person to answer that uh, question. Uh, Alex Flores, gastroenterologist from Tufts, is a member of uh, uh, advisory board, so uh, probably this question has to be directed to him. But again, many of our patients take uh, Neuralax and, uh, for, for years, and I'm unaware of any uh, dangerous or really bad side effects of it. 
Uh, as far as probiotics, I am a strong proponent of probiotics, uh, cultural, uh, other probiotics, uh, flora store. I, uh, even as a neurologist, I sometimes recommend and prescribe it to uh, my patients, absolutely. Thank you. Other questions? I had a question about, uh, this is Kathy Rivers from Maryland. Um, my three children and I have uh, MTDNA depletion disorder. Um, we've been using uh, methylcobalamin and have found great benefit from that, and we came to mitochondrial disease via the autism world. Um, I was wondering if you had any opinions with uh, about methylcobalamin. Uh, we don't, and uh, uh, honestly, I did not even come up in our review of uh, the supplement, but I certainly will be very happy uh, to look more into that. Okay. Dr. Ansom, a question that I had from a member is uh, it, there's a table in the article, drugs with reported mitochondrial toxicity, and there's actually a, um, a speaker from Pfizer who spoke to us this year about drug-related mitochondrial toxicity and black box warnings and so forth. But one common question is that acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, is listed as having a reported mitochondrial toxicity, yet we know that um, fever control is so important in a person with mitochondrial disorder. What's your recommendation? And, and in the discussions in um, publishing the article, was there a lot of concern about Tylenol um, or is or not? Could you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, many of our patients and adults need Tylenol acetaminophen to control the fever. We did have a discussion about that, and uh, I was actually even surprised that it uh, got into this table because they're not that huge concerns about acetaminophen. Of course, we all know that in large doses, it may be toxic to everyone, not even mitochondrial patients. And of course, patients with mitochondrial disorders may have some underlying liver problems. Uh, so it's not that it's strictly prohibited, but uh, it should not be uh, overused and some caution has to be uh, done with that, but uh, it's not strictly prohibited, and of course there are medications which are far more toxic for mitochondrial patients, and they are listed in uh, uh, in the stable, and the first one, of course, is valproic acid or Depakote, and some antiretroviral patients, and uh, um, some antibiotics, and even aspirin, but Tylenol, uh, it's sort of like uh, has this uh, media. Thank you. All right, we have time for uh, about one more question. Does anyone else have a question? Yes, this is Sue from Rochester. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, I, I kind of got in on it late, so it may have already been covered, but I'm wondering about uh, the deribose. If, if you ever use that, I've read like different. Um, Articles about that, and I think when you had the, when MitoAction had a discussion uh, way back that did with Salve Pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. they did bring up the deribose, and I'm wondering if Dr. Anselm uses deribose on her mito patients. I I don't use it, although it's made by Solar.
numbers, and I looked into that, and this is also a supplement which has been used by bodybuilders and uh, uh, probably may uh, improve uh, some strength. So um, I think we have to look more into that, but I do not have my own experience on that. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. And, and does anyone else have a question or comment related to the discussion today or um, your own experience that you could share in with this um, supplements and a pre treatment approaches? Well, I'll ask my question that I've discussed with you, Christy. Uh, this is Bob Brief. Uh, what do you think doctor about the use of SSRIs for someone with the mitochondrial disease in terms of the potential toxicity of these? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I um, have to review the literature. I had patients which were older ones, although I follow kids mostly, who were depressed and who were placed on SSRIs and they did fine. And uh, based on what we know about the mechanism of actions of SSRIs that they work on the serotonin stores in the brain, I do not see any problem uh, to use them in patients with mitochondrial disorders, but I am um, um, unaware of a literature on that, and I think that will have to be reviewed and further addressed. But the simple answer is I think that's fine to use them. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Well, uh, on behalf of everyone who has had the opportunity to participate today, Dr. Anselm, I'd like to thank you. And I'd also like to thank you and the others who contributed to this publication because I do feel that it's very helpful and I recommend that our families and patients um, share this article and, and help to bring the consensus of treatment opinion to their um, primary care doctors and to their specialists, um, particularly knowing that the, this was a group that put this together and it's very well done. And I appreciate the time that you've spent taking to go through each of these alternatives and to really discuss candidly what you know and, and what the limitations are because I think that what you said at the beginning is certainly true. It will be interesting to see what happens in the next five to ten years because I think the landscape has changed so much already, even in just the last five years. So, um, And we are seeing more and more families and more and more patients coming to us with a new diagnosis, so I imagine that that's really a, a trend everywhere. Okay. Do you have any closing comments, Dr. No, thank you. I want to thank you, Christy, and I want to thank everyone who participated. And it's obvious that there are a lot of more discussions ahead of us and those questions which were raised today are very important ones, and uh, definitely I think we should look more into hyperbaric oxygenation and the reports that are available on that and uh, uh, treatment with SSRIs and D-Rebors. So uh, I'll be very interested in looking further into that, and I'm sure other physicians will be too. Thank you so much, okay. Dr. Anselman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. For everyone who participated, thank you. And uh, again, you can access the article online. Um, it'll stay on this page, and the summary will go uh, up along with the audio recording as soon as we can get that put together. Uh, hopefully, the audio recording will go up by the end of the day today. If not, then Monday. 
I want to remind everyone that uh, next month in December, um, Dr. Alvarez is a, a neurologist who specializes in epilepsy, and she has had several patients with seizure disorders who have mitochondrial disease. And so um, she'll be talking about that, and she'll be talking about um, those specific issues related to mitochondrial disease and options for treatment since um, Depakote is not recommended. So if you are interested in that, please help share the word. And I encourage all of you to participate in the support groups that go on on Fridays as well. As always, if you have any questions or if there's anything that I can do to help you or help connect you to others, I encourage you to send me an email. It's director at mitoaction.org. You can also post your questions and comments and read and get to know a lot of other great people who are in the same boat as you on the forum, which is on the website, so that you would find that at mitoaction.org backslash forum, F-O-R-U-M. And uh, there's several categories there, and I encourage you guys to take a look at that too. So thank you all so much for joining us today, and I'll look forward to talking with you again for the rest of the month and in December too. Thank you, Christy. Right, thanks, Christy. Thank you. Okay, thanks, great. Christy. Okay, bye-bye.